My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. They were a happy family and she was a vibrant young mother. When she smiled and laughed, you, you couldn't help not loving her. She was the epitome of a good mother. But tragedy would come calling one terrifying Halloween night. He was screaming and yelling, help my wife, help my wife. It was so gruesome in nature. Who does this? To solve the crime, detectives must follow a trail of unnerving clues. To unveil a killer and a motive unlike anything police have ever witnessed. We saw a man across the street wearing this wolf mask. I think all of us were stunned. I didn't see any of this coming. This came out of a horror movie. San Jose, California. Halloween night, 1984. In the close-knit neighborhood of Berryessa, costumed children roam the streets while grinning jack-o'-lanterns glow on porch steps. Halloween was just, you know, a, a happy night for kids. They got all dressed up and go trick-or-treating. Beautiful time, you know. But on this Halloween, the festivities take a disturbing turn when the local 911 dispatch receives a frantic call. It was around 9.30. There was a call of a possible stabbing at this location. The caller identifies himself as Charles Herbert. Charles is hysterical. And he says that his wife, Doreen, is lying on the floor in a deep pool of blood, and she's eight months pregnant. First responders arrive on the scene moments later. There had to be an inch of blood all over the place. One of Doreen's arms was cut 
in an angle, and the forearm completely cut off. Numerous cuts in the abdomen and over 25 shots to the head. They saw Doreen's husband, Charles, covered with blood. He was speaking hysterically and almost nonsensical. I could hear Charles screaming and yelling that, help my wife, help my wife, I don't know what's going on. He was beside himself, absolutely beside himself, screaming and yelling, my wife, my wife, my wife. Doreen Ray Hitchens was born on November 29, 1952, in Santa Clara, California, to a loving family. She had a good childhood. I know she did. She had a sister and a brother also that were all so loving. Well, she was an angel. When she smiled and laughed, you couldn't help not loving her. She was always giving. Doreen's kind and generous nature led her towards a career caring for others. She, like, worked at a hospital. She was a physical therapist. She likes to volunteer at schools. She loved kids. Before meeting Charles, Doreen fell in love with a man named William Michael Dennis, who went by Michael. Mike was, was hard of hearing. He was deaf. That must have been tough with a hearing aid. And, you know, in those days, it was a big thing in your pocket and a wire. He didn't interact a lot. There wasn't a lot of conversation. He didn't bother anybody. He was just a, he was a pretty mellow person. Michael, a factory worker, had been set up with Doreen through friends. The couple hit it off quickly. He said, I feel great. I found the one. She is the one for me. I felt like this is going to be something that was going to have a good chance of working out. It was a, a short relationship. They only knew each other seven or eight months before they got married. And in April 1976, Doreen and Michael welcomed a baby boy, Paul Dennis, into the world. Mike really was a doting dad. Paul was the apple of his eye, his son that he loved so completely. Unfortunately, the strain of being new parents was too much for the young couple to bear, and they divorced a year later. Michael moved out, while Doreen retained primary custody of Paul, who visited his dad on weekends. But Michael cherished every moment he spent with his boy. The custody arrangements allowed Mike to visit Paul, but not have him under his own custody. He did talk about wishing that he could spend more time with his son. Not long after her divorce from Michael, Doreen met 28-year-old Charles Herbert, who owned a carpet shop. A flat tire brought them together. Her car was broke down, and just happened to pull over. And we exchanged numbers, and it what, took off from there. Even Charles and little Paul hit it off. Paul was a great, great son, a typical child. He'd get in things, and I loved him. The following year, Doreen and Charles tied the knot. The couple had a baby girl of their own, Deanna Herbert, in November 1979. When Deanna was born, it was a blessing. 
She loved Deanna. But tragedy struck on February 17, 1980. Four-year-old Paul was at his mother's house when he fell into the family pool. The pool had a fence up that was protected. I believe the dog dug a hole under the fence and it was enough for him to get through. When baby Paul was pulled from the swimming pool, he was put on life support for a week. He was taken off life support and died three days later. Just sorrow for a long, long time. It's hard to explain the feeling, especially a child. There's no words for that. Paul's death was a devastating blow to the entire family, but his biological father, Mike, was inconsolable. Well, the bond and love that he had for his son, that just tore him apart. That was his whole life. And losing his son, he lost part of himself. Although it was difficult, Mike, Doreen, and Charles all tried to move on. But Mike, still consumed by his grief, soon drifted out of their lives altogether. Then, four years later, Charles and Doreen learned they had a new baby boy on the way. It was pure joy. Everything was going fine. And we were really expecting, you know, in a month or so. The baby was due in early November 1984. However, a horrific crime rocks the family on Halloween night when Charles finds Doreen bleeding profusely after a savage attack in their home. It seemed like a nightmare. Coming up, paramedics work frantically to save Doreen's life. It was so gruesome in nature. You know, who, who does this? And investigators find a disturbing clue left behind by the attacker. The right side is a, a mask. It's a wolf's mask. And it's just laying there. Halloween night, 1984. Families in the suburbs of San Jose, California, are wrapping up a long night of trick-or-treating when police and paramedics respond to a reported stabbing at the home of Doreen and Charles Herbert. The person who called it in, Charles, was saying that he was trying to put his wife back together. When paramedics arrived at her home, she still had a pulse. While paramedics rush Doreen to the hospital, Officers detain her husband, Charles, for questioning. He was frantic. He was speaking hysterically and almost nonsensical. They were trying to get him in the police car because he would be the first natural suspect seeing he's all covered in blood. He was kicking the door of the uh, police car. And that's when they said, get him out of here and get him downtown. As Charles is driven away, officers make sure no one else is in the house. This is standard operating procedure to go and clear the house to make sure that we're not getting set up for an ambush, make sure nobody was hiding under beds and so on. 
Officers find a four-year-old girl hiding in the living room. The little girl is Charles and Doreen's daughter, Deanna. She was behind a couch. Police must handle this very delicately. You have a four-year-old child who most definitely has been traumatized. She would have to see a specialist, a psychiatrist, someone that she can talk to before they get a chance to find out what she may have witnessed. With the house now cleared, officers set up a perimeter. Detectives arrive and try to make sense of the crime scene. The front door is wide open, and, you know, it had Halloween caricatures on it. And since the door was open, you could see inside. You could see that the hallway was red, and then that there was a stool with a pumpkin on it. It was this lit jack-o'-lantern sitting on a bar stool with this grin on its face, and it was the only light in the house with this candle in it, and it was completely, completely eerie, completely bizarre. It's obvious to investigators that whoever attacked Doreen must have done it right inside the front door, suggesting she opened it to her assailant. Upon close inspection of the area, detectives realized the weapon used must have been a large, heavy object, possibly a machete. When you hit somebody with a machete or a knife and you raise your arm back to strike again, you actually send a spray of blood backwards. There was blood splattered everywhere, on the ceiling, on the walls, on the furniture. They found nicks on the ceiling, so someone lifting his arm up like that would actually hit the ceiling before it came down. On the floor by the front door, detectives find another haunting clue. Over in the right corner of the entranceway is a wolf mask. It's a mask. And I asked, uh, what is this? They said, yeah, no, we found it there. A mask of a caricature wolf with big teeth, big eyes, tongue hanging out. Had the mask been left by Doreen's attacker? Officers tag the mask as evidence. Less than an hour later, they receive devastating news from the hospital. The captain comes over to me and says that the victim at the hospital is dead, has been declared dead. So we got a homicide there. We got a homicide in the house. Based off the viciousness of the attack, Detectives conclude the crime must have been personal. You have to have a tremendous amount of rage. The type of people that we were looking at right away on any homicide is somebody that's close to the family, somebody close to the victim. At that point, I was kind of convinced that we had the right guy in custody in, in the department, which was Doreen's husband, because he was covered in blood. At the San Jose Police Department, 33-year-old Charles Herbert is held on suspicion of murder. It was unbelievable how they thought I could do it. I'm the culprit. They removed all my clothes and gave me this paper thing to wear. And then a policeman came in and said, your wife has died. And I asked the guy to hug me, and he said, I can't. And uh, I was allowed to worship my hands in the blood. He was sad. 
that my dad had to be locked up while she passed away. Charles denies being the killer, claiming he only found Doreen's body after returning home from the store. Halloween night, Doreen took Deanna trick-or-treating, and then we us giving out candy. And when she came back, it was uh, getting late, and there was no one coming to the door. So I went down to the store. He went to a store to get something to drink and more candy, and then stopped by a friend's house, and then was going to make his way home. Charles says he arrived back home just after 9 p.m. The front door was unlocked, and Doreen was lying in the entryway, covered in blood. I tried pushing things back in. Uh, she was still breathing harsh. He was trying to put his wife back together. Charles claims there was no sign of Doreen's attacker when he returned home. When asked by detectives if he knows of anyone who might want to hurt his wife, Charles says he can't think of anyone. Still, the mask collected inside the Herbert home suggests that whoever killed Doreen may have been concealing a familiar face. They spent much of that night interrogating Charles. They decided to hold him longer. Back at the scene, Investigators move on to the exterior of the house, where they find something else the killer seems to have left behind. They found a trail of blood leaving the Ebert's house. It went all the way down the street, but then it suddenly stopped, almost as if maybe someone went into a car and drove off. Police weren't sure what they were dealing with. Police wonder, could the trail have come from the victim's blood dripping off the killer? Or was it the killer's own blood from an injury sustained during the attack? In those days, we had to rely on, on blood typing, blood classification. Investigators collect samples of the blood with the hope they'll be able to compare the blood type to a suspect. Next, police turn to the neighbors to see if anyone saw something suspicious that evening or could offer insight into who could have committed this crime. I was going to canvas the area to see if anyone had seen anything. I talked to several people in the block. Some were further into the cul-de-sac, so they didn't see anything. But one witness says he did notice something odd around 6.30 or 7 p.m. He had seen somebody wearing a wolf mask. He noticed that there was a person standing across the street from the home, simply staring at the home. He was wearing a wolf mask. It's Halloween. That's not out of the realm of reasoning. But he did notice that the person was just standing there staring. What seems strange to this neighbor is that the person wearing the wolf mask didn't appear to be someone who was just enjoying the holiday with everyone else in the neighborhood. He seemed isolated. He stood there. He stared, not necessarily part of a party. That puts a man wearing a wolf mask and the wolf mask that I saw at the entryway together. Coming up. 
An unexpected tip leads police to the door of a new suspect. We knew somebody was there. Somebody's trying to flush or wash away evidence. And later, detectives make an ominous discovery. They find in the garage two handmade coffins. As a SNAP listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I learn about, I'm reminded how much I want to prioritize my vigilance and preparation. That's why I use and recommend Simply Safe Home Security. My cameras have alerted me about trespassers and even given me a sense of security knowing my home is safe even when I'm not there. Simply Safe offers protection for the whole house with advanced sensors that not only detect break ins, but fires, floods, and other threats to your home and getting you the help you need for each scenario. The indoor security cameras offer privacy shutters to ensure physical privacy when you want it. Plus, you can try Simply Safe for 60 days risk free. If you don't love it, return your system for a full refund. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/snapped. That's simplysafe.com/snapped. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So, you keep trying to get in shape and it keeps not working. I'm Lacey Green, a super trainer with body. That's BODI.com. And I've got a story you have to hear. I have a client who came to me because she was really frustrated that every gym or trainer she tried made her feel bad because she was a beginner. She had tried it all and she just felt humiliated. And that's when we started working together and I took her through my three week program called For Beginners Only. Once she realized that she wasn't the problem and that she just needed the right program, she started to get results. And now she's completely unstoppable and feeling so strong and confident. And I can do the same for you. On the Body app, subscribers lose five to 10 pounds consistently in their first month. And I bet you will too. In fact, CNN underscore just named Body best fitness app. And right now, Body has a special introductory offer. The next 500 new users who sign up for a year of Body save 72%. That's just 33 cents a day. All you have to do is go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. It's Halloween night, and San Jose police are desperately searching for a suspect in the brutal murder of 31-year-old Doreen Herbert. Investigators believe the killer was wearing a wolf mask when he attacked Doreen. They found a mask of a caricature wolf with big teeth, big eyes, tongue hanging out. She must have answered the door and there was a man in a wolf's mask who basically started slashing at her. I didn't know uh, if there was an argument or not. I just know that he uh, unloaded on her. I mean, it, it was a crime that seemed to just come out of a, a movie. So far, police have one person of interest in custody, Doreen's husband, Charles Herbert. While investigators continue to question Charles at the police station, another team of detectives interviews the couple's neighbors, hoping to uncover a clue that could shed light on the masked killer's identity or a possible motive. Police were anxious to find the killer. Was it someone who knew the Eberts? Or was it some just psychopath out there who had chosen 
Halloween to commit one of the most horrific murders ever seen, not just in San Jose, but in the country. The neighbors can't think of any enemies of Doreen or Charles Herbert. But a few do mention that Doreen's relationship with her ex-husband, Michael Dennis, had recently turned south. They said she was married before with a guy by the name of Michael Dennis. I had two addresses for this guy. And I told the captain, I'm going to go to this address to see if I can find this guy. Police head to Michael's residence, which is less than two miles away from the Herberts. When they arrive, it's still Halloween night, just a few hours after the crime was initially reported. I remember there's a truck on the driveway, and I just, with a flashlight, I look in, and we see blood on the steering wheel, and on the key, and on the gear shift knob. Investigators approach the front door cautiously and knock. No one answers. But in walking around to the side of the house, police find evidence that someone is home. We look up, and the light is on, and you could hear water running. So we knew somebody was there, and then we all looked at each other, and the first thing I thought, which is everybody thought, somebody's trying to flush or wash away evidence. Water shut off, another knock at the door, and the door opens, and it's William Dennis. He's wearing a, a robe with his hands in his pocket. And he says, yes, sir, can I help you? I says, well, we are here investigating the murder of your ex-wife, Doreen. And he goes, oh, something like, oh, really? Really? I go, yeah. That struck me as weird, because normally people are aghast at homicides. Oh, my god, you're kidding. Michael invites the detectives inside to discuss the case. He has a second surprising response when the investigators ask him if he'd be willing to let them search his home. I said, would you mind signing a consent to search form so we can look at the house? And he said, yeah, no problem, because I've got nothing to hide. And then as he goes to sign it, he cannot sign it with his right hand because he's trapped and white bandages. There's blood on his bandages. We all noticed it at that point. I asked the guy, what happened to your hand? And he goes, that he was twirling a knife up in the air and that instead of grabbing it on the way down by the handle, he grabbed it by the blade and he cut himself. Michael eventually signs the warrant with his left hand and officers do a light search of the house. I did notice that it looked like there was some clothes that were bloody up in the bedroom. The investigators also find blood drops on the kitchen floor and on the grass outside the house. In the bathroom, they find bloody gauze. To detectives, the amount of blood on the scene is too much to have come from a hand simply cut by a slipped knife. I see all this gauze, all this blood, and I say, you're under arrest for murder. So I handcuffed him. After arresting Michael Dennis, police finally feel confident that they can release Doreen's husband, Charles Herbert. 
Upon arrival at police administration building with suspect Michael Dennis, I talked to my partner who told me that uh, he didn't believe that Charleston had committed this crime. With Charles cleared of any role in Doreen's murder, detectives set about trying to learn why her ex-husband, Michael Dennis, may have committed the crime. But Michael insists he's innocent and claims to have an alibi for the time period when the crime occurred. He tells them he's been home since 4 p.m., that he had dinner with his mother, and he was passing out candy till 8.30. While Michael gives police a timeline, an alibi as to where he says he was, police don't absolve him of being suspicious because they say no matter that timeline that he expressed to police, he still would have had enough time to get to the Herbert home, do his murderous dirty work, and get out of there before Charles arrived. Despite their suspicions, police don't have any hard evidence connecting Michael to the crime, which means they can't hold him in custody for long. He goes to jail. You know, California, you can only hold for 48 hours. Eager to find a clue that directly ties Michael to the crime, police do another, more thorough search of his home. Inside Michael Dennis's home, in a closet, police find two important pieces of evidence. One is a receipt from a hardware store and a label for a machete with an 18-inch blade. Detectives also search Michael's garage for the first time and make a chilling discovery. They find in the garage two handmade coffins. One casket was taller than the other, and one would have actually fit Doreen. What is this about? Why would they be in his garage? It's an ominous discovery. Next to the coffins, police find more troubling evidence. They find two body bags, and they find weights, and they find a map of the San Francisco Bay. As disconcerting as the discovery may seem, none of it physically ties Michael Dennis to Doreen's murder. And 48 hours after his arrest, police are forced to release the suspected killer from custody. Essentially, there was insufficient evidence to hold him longer. So they were forced to release him, to let him go. Coming up, police desperately search for new clues, as many fear the true killer may escape justice. This guy is out, he's a flight risk, and the rest of the family is scared to death. And the key to solving the crime may hinge on the memory of its sole survivor. Remember her yelling, um, get out of here, get out of here. And I have no idea how a little four or five-year-old girl could live through something like that. As police investigate the gruesome murder of Doreen Herbert and her unborn child on Halloween night, the community of San Jose is left reeling over the horrific attack. 
The next day is when the brutality of the crime was revealed. I remember there was even a news conference by then San Jose Police Chief Joseph McNamara, who called it the Halloween Horror. 48 hours after he was arrested, Doreen's ex-husband, 34-year-old Michael Dennis, is released from police custody. Despite the lack of concrete evidence connecting him to the crime, authorities still consider Dennis their prime suspect. When Michael Dennis walked out of the Santa Clara County Jail, I remember vividly he had sort of a wild-eyed look. He pushed through the waiting crowd of cameramen and reporters, basically saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. In a final attempt to prove their case, police turn to Doreen's four-year-old daughter, Deanna, on the chance she can identify the man who attacked her mother. So far, Deanna has been too traumatized to speak on the events of that evening. She just had to be calmed down a lot because of what she saw. I mean, I would be, even now, I would be traumatized to see one of my parent, anyone, get slaughtered like that. Working with a child psychiatrist, Deanna is able to describe with important detail her memories from the night her mother was killed. I don't remember trick-or-treating that night. I do remember sitting down with my mom and we were watching TV. And I remember my dad saying he was gonna go to the store. She was together with her mom when she heard a loud bang on the door. It didn't sound like a regular knock. It was a little more aggressive. The mother got up to go answer the door. And as soon as she opened the door, the massacre started. That's when she yelled for Deanna to run. I don't remember hearing the screams. I just remember her yelling at him, get out, get out. And my mom told me to go hide. I hid right behind the couch. And after that, it kind of was a little blurry. Deanna doesn't recall getting a good look at the killer after his mask came off. But he seemed to know who she was. He was going through the house looking for her and calling her name. And if he would have found her, he would, he, would, he would have killed her. No two ways about it. And he didn't find her, and he left. I really wasn't sure if he was really gone or, you know, so I just stayed behind that couch. And I have no idea how a little four or five-year-old girl could live through something like that. God kept me safe. He definitely kept me safe. While Deanna's recollection is vivid, it's still not enough to prove Michael Dennis is the killer. And investigators fear they are running out of time. This guy is out. He's a flight risk. And the rest of the family is scared to death and that they might be next. Investigators do realize they need more evidence to bolster their case, so they decide to look into Michael Dennis's private life. William Michael Dennis was trying to cope with some personal stresses in his life. Police learn that all of Michael's problems seem to stem from the loss of his and Doreen's son four years earlier. Police found out the circumstances Doreen found 
her son in the family pool. He had drowned. It was an accident, but her ex-husband never forgave her for that. He was unattended. Wherever Doreen was, she wasn't with Paul, obviously. Mike just said how uh, angry he was. Investigators discover that Michael had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Doreen and Charles. He thinks it was their negligence that the son died. He thought his son was murdered. He believes in his heart that there was intention on her part. He thought in his mind about what Doreen's intentions were. Was she just trying to get rid of Paul? I think he kind of settled on that, that idea that she really didn't care about him anymore. She'd moved on to a new marriage, um, new kids, etc. And Paul was something of a burden to her. We thought immediately it was money. And then we, t we discussed it, and it was trying to put a hurt on us trying to make us feel more guilty about what happened. After two years of legal battles, a judge rules in favor of Doreen and Charles, declaring Paul's death an accident. I think losing the wrongful death suit, what he told me is basically that my son's life has zero value. It has zero value. And at that point, he was just like, okay. What am I going to do? Following the lawsuit, Doreen and Charles had no more contact with Mike. Since it didn't go his direction, I thought it was all over. We'd never see or hear from him again. Then, two years later, Doreen is savagely murdered. Police strongly believe Michael is the killer, but so far, they don't have enough evidence to prove it. That is, until the state crime lab finally identifies the blood collected from the crime scene. He's got the same blood type as a murderer. This was before there was DNA testing, but they do find that his blood was commingled with Doreen's blood. On November 5th, police arrest Michael Dennis on murder charges for the second time. As police and prosecutors continue to build their case, the discovery of an address book in Michael's home leads to more evidence connecting him to the crime. I'm looking at this black book and it has names of, of girls. So I go around calling and I talk to this girl and she goes, matter of fact, last year, we went to this party, we were dressed, he was dressed as a big bad wolf, crossing my fingers. I said, did anybody take pictures by any chance? And she goes, oh, yeah. The guy took tons of pictures. Coming up, William Michael Dennis goes to trial, and the grim purpose of his handmade coffins is finally revealed. Anger does indeed metastasize over time. It doesn't go away, especially when it's something as tragic as this. On July 19, 1988, four years after his arrest, Michael Dennis goes to trial for the first-degree murder of his ex-wife, Doreen Herbert, 
and the second-degree murder of her unborn child. The prosecution lays before the jury a case of means, motive, and opportunity for Michael Dennis, a man so traumatized over losing his son, a man enraged that he could not be properly compensated or get justice in a wrongful death suit. He was not succeeding in his life, and he could not get over the fact that his wife, in his mind, caused him to lose his son. Prosecutors theorize Michael had stewed over his loss for four years while his ex-wife moved on with her life. Anger does indeed metastasize over time. It doesn't go away, especially when it's something as tragic as this. Prosecutors believe Michael Dennis came up with a diabolical plan for revenge. Citing the evidence found in his garage, they lay forth the theory that Michael Dennis planned to kidnap and kill Doreen, her new husband Charles, and their young daughter Deanna by drowning them in the San Francisco Bay. The evidence that found in the garage, the, the body bags, the coffins, the weight, the map of San Francisco Bay, was clearly indications that William Michael Dennis had been thinking all along about killing the Herberts the same way his son Paul died, drowning. His plan was to dump him in the bay of San Mateo Bridge. He built the coffins, and he's going to take us out and then carry us back to his cellar and put us in coffins. It's ridiculous. He's crazy. But prosecutors believe Michael never followed through with his plan because something had pushed him over the brink. And on Halloween night, 1984, he decided to seek his revenge another way. Now, why did he decide to abandon that idea and instead put on a wolf's mask and get a machete? Could it be that he realized Halloween was coming around and he saw that wolf's mask and somehow wildly concocted this idea of revenge. Prosecutors suggest that perhaps it was the sight of children trick-or-treating in his neighborhood that caused Michael to go over the edge nearly four years after his son's death. I think trick-or-treaters came to his house. He saw his son running up to trick-or-treat, and everything came to a boil. And he started thinking about it. And he says, the hell with it. I'm going to do it now. And he did. Losing his son, he lost part of himself. And he just snapped. When it comes to presenting their case, Michael's defense attorney doesn't deny that his client committed the crime. Instead, he argues that Michael was mentally unhinged and shouldn't be held accountable. The experts who did psychological evaluation on Michael Dennis testified that they felt he had become completely unglued over the loss of his son. This is an example of an anger that had become so intense and a sense of grief so intense that I think it's sort of wedged there in his mind that this is that his scenario of what Doreen was doing or not doing is what caused Paul's death, and there was a there was a part of that was intentional. 
I, I understand that his belief that she murdered his child, and therefore he had an obligation to make that right. And that's, that's hard. I think that's deeply how he feels. Michael's attorney also claims that Michael had no idea Doreen was pregnant. He was so filled with rage when that door opened that I don't think he remembers the actual event as it happens. I think he was just so blinded by his anger. William Michael Dennis had initially pleaded not guilty to the murder of Doreen Herbert and her unborn child. During the course of the trial, he changed his plea and said he did commit the murders by reason of insanity, although a psychiatrist never categorized him as being insane. On August 16, 1988, William Michael Dennis pleads guilty to first and second degree murder in the death of Doreen Herbert and her unborn child. He is sentenced to death. He never really expressed remorse. He never really said, I'm sorry for killing her. I'm happy with the verdict. He took my mom, he took my brother, tried to tear the family apart, but it didn't work. While justice has been served for Doreen and her unborn child, what happened that Halloween night in 1984 continues to haunt this San Jose neighborhood. Every Halloween, I think about it. I mean, every time I see a pregnant woman, I think about it. It's just horrendous. You know, it, it's, it's something that really shook San Jose. There was a time after the matter, I was on a path to drinking myself or killing myself subconsciously. I didn't want to be there no more, but I had to be there for Deanna. My dad dealt with it a little bit more harder than I did. He's had a few rough patches here and there. It wasn't an easy childhood. I was in and out of schools a lot because I think I had to do a lot with uh, William Michael Dennis. I think because he wanted to kind of keep me sheltered, kind of hidden, just in case. He's always been there for me no matter what. It happened. It got accepted, and we got to move on. The anger, the hate, the revenge has pretty much subsided. But yes, I forgive him for my sake. I'll never forget what he did, but I forgave him for what he did, because I don't want to hold that anger for the rest of my life. My mom would want me to move on with my life. My mom would want me to be happy. More than 30 years after his sentencing, William Michael Dennis still sits on death row. He is currently housed at San Quentin State Prison. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. 
If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.